Hey Medina East, Tommy here. Welcome to our online weekend experience. Thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time ever checking out Grace Church, we are so glad you are here. Not only can you find the message on our social media platforms, but you can also find it on our website, our Grace Church app, and now even on YouTube. Uh, this week, we invite you to sit in with Seth and Tony as we discuss the cross and the difference it makes in each of our lives. Also, make sure to stick around after the conversation for a time of music and worship. I'm looking forward to spending this time together. Before we jump into our conversation, I wanted to give you some important updates. Uh, for all current news and happenings at Grace Church, check out the website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org. While you are there, make sure to click on the COVID-19 Ministry Updates button. There you'll find Power Kids announcements, um, student ministry social media links, plus a few other helpful resources to navigate through this unprecedented time. You will also find access to online giving. Uh, giving is a way for those who follow Jesus to worship and express faith in God's provision and his faithfulness to us in every season including these uncertain times. In order to coordinate serving our community, we've created a Love Medina page on our website. If you or someone you know needs help, go to medinaeast.gracechurches.org. And on the homepage, you will find a link that takes you to the Love Medina application. Fill that out and we will do our best to contact you within 24 hours to see how we may be able to assist. You can also call us at 330 239-2600 and leave a message for the pastor on call. If you would like to volunteer to help others, uh, fill out the Love Medina volunteer application. You will be contacted with details of how you can help someone in our community with an immediate critical need. For more information, you can contact Steve Van Meter at svanmeter at graceohio.org. Although we are not meeting in person, that does not mean church is canceled. Uh, the church is not a building, but rather is people like you and in this time, we want to come together to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our community and world. Um, hope you enjoy the following discussion. And as always, we love you guys, we miss you, and hopefully we'll be able to talk soon. this, but we're uh, glad to have you on with our uh, online weekend experience here this weekend. Let me just say, too, that if you're someone who's not normally part of the Medina East Campus, if you're just kind of tuning in, or maybe if someone kind of shared this link with you, to so introduce myself. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Grace, and actually with me is uh, Pastor Seth, who's also a pastor here. And uh, Seth, I noticed you wore some different shoes here today from yeah. last time, so let's just check the bottom. Anything? Yeah, I think the bottoms are uh, good. Yeah. Uh, there's no <laughs> vestiges or illusion of tape being yeah. on the bottom of my shoes, which apparently people go. were commenting a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so if in case you don't know what I'm talking about, a couple weeks ago, Seth was was part of our online weekend experience, and the number one comment we got <laughs> was, "What in the world is on the bottom of Seth's shoe?" Yeah, it's, so yeah. it was it was the artist, the, the shoe architect, put it there. So yeah. it wasn't a, it wasn't yeah. a random piece of tape. It there was wasn't it was supposed to be there. For the record, there was nothing on the bottom of his shoe. It was designed that way. So, but anyway, we're glad to have you. And um, actually, this weekend uh, we want to do something kind of cool, something kind of unique uh, for this weekend and next weekend. So many of you know that this weekend actually marks the beginning of something that is historically called Holy Week. And so this kind of marks the beginning of uh, the final week of Jesus's life that's celebrated and remembered all throughout the world, and specifically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this week, we're actually going to be talking about uh, the cross, and next week we're going to be talking about uh, the resurrection. And really, we're going to be talking about uh, what I believe, what we believe, and I, I don't think this is an exaggeration at all no. when we say this. Uh, we believe are the two most important events in all of human history, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and then, of course, the resurrection uh, as well. And so uh, this week we're going to be talking and thinking about um, the cross. And, of course, whenever you introduce a topic like this, uh, my goodness, it is uh, inexhaustible in its implications. And so uh, we could talk about this forever. But we just thought maybe one important dynamic that we could talk about is we could just talk about what is the difference, what difference does does the cross of Jesus Christ make? The fact that Jesus Christ was historically, uh, literally crucified. Like, what difference does that make? What difference does that make 
historically? What difference does that make uh, theologically? What difference does that make personally? Right. right? Or does it? Should it make exactly. a difference personally? And we're going to think about that. There's a lot to say, but I think that the question that we want to kind of process through together, just to kind of narrow our, our conversation, is we want to deal with this question right here. And here's the question. How does the cross... The, the crucifixion of Jesus impact and inform the way that we view the way we view God, and I think this question is actually very important. Maybe impo more important than we might realize at face value. You know, I think it was uh, A. W. Tozer who said. Um, in fact, I know it was A. W. Tozer who said. <laughs> uh, he said, "What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us." And man, that's a that's a big statement. I think if I understand him correctly, what he's saying is. Um, that the most important aspect of our lives is how we understand and view God. That's a big statement. So let me ask you, Seth. I think I think you would probably agree with that. Totally agree. Um, but why? What What do you think he's getting at here? Yeah, I think as you mentioned, the the depths of the cross and its meaning, its significance, is unplumbable, like inexhaustible, like you said. And I think uh, this statement too, unpacking that, it would it could take us weeks uh, to show why this statement is true and how significant it is for our lives personally. But I would just say, and this is something that we talk about actually in the equipping division in the class, What Do Christians Believe? We spend an entire session on it. And we just simply say that this is true because of something that we know to be true, which is <clears throat> this idea of like belief, or I'm sorry, behavior follows belief. Behavior follows belief. So what do, you, what do we mean by that? Well, we're gonna say that what you believe about like the key fundamental questions of life that every single person is always asking and we're always answering in, in like snap judgments subconsciously at the end of the day. Like those are questions, what you believe the answers to those questions are will absolutely translate into what you value, uh, the trajectory of your life, where you head, what you're passionate about, what you worship. And so I think uh, when we look at this, the big fundamental question is your view of God is the most important thing about you because your belief in God, what he's like, who he is, but also whether you believe he exists or not um, is going to absolutely translate and shape what you do with your life. So it makes a massive impact. Yeah, I, I agree. I think even if, uh, if you're a person who would say that you're an atheist, if you say you don't believe in God, you have no belief, yeah. even that is going to paint and form the way you make decisions, the way you view other people, the way you navigate through life. Yeah. And if you view God as a distant God or God is disappointed in you, that's obviously going to make a big impact on the way you view yourself. Yeah. And, so yeah, I totally agree with this. But I think uh, so what we're going to be talking about is that the cross is actually going to teach us a whole lot about who God is. So the passage that we want to invite you to turn your Bibles to, if you would, with us, is actually Colossians chapter 2. And so we're just going to look at a few verses here in Colossians 2. I think they're really powerful, and I think they really kind of help us understand how the cross of Jesus Christ impacts the way that we understand and we view God. So hopefully you got your Bibles open there or you open up your Bible app in Colossians chapter 2. But as we look at the few verses that we're going to look at, I think we're going to see that really there's there's three kind of three big things that we want to hone in on as it relates to how the cross impacts the way that we view God. And these are, these are the three things just that we're going to think about is I think we're talking about how the cross tells us who God is. So, so first and foremost, we're going to say that the cross is actually going to tell us something about the character of God, about what, what is God like. But not only that, the cross is also going to tell us how God acts. So uh, how does God behave? How does he act in, in the world and in our lives? And then uh, the cross is going to tell us how to live, that, uh, that the cross is going to actually instruct and motivate even the way that we, we kind of live our lives. So let's just process through these things together. Uh, maybe we can just start at the top. The cross tells us... Uh, who God is. And, you know, I think that uh, in that Colossians passage, chapter 2, uh, I want you to notice something that the Apostle Paul says, starting off here in verse 9. He says this, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Okay, so let me just hit pause here for a minute. And I just, I just want you to notice something here that, and this is actually very much like what you'd see throughout the whole New Testament, that in the Bible, and specifically in the New Testament, uh, the pictures that the Bible tends to give us of Jesus are these very, very high, um, exalted views of who he is. So this whole notion that, you know, sometimes we hear people talk about how uh, Jesus is simply a good teacher or how he is a uh, kind of a moral example of the way we should all live. I think when you actually read the New Testament, like for real, 
you realize that the New Testament will not allow you to stop there with Jesus. You have to keep going. Because I mean, look at, look at, these, look at these statements. Um, for in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Uh, the fullness, that's the, this, this idea of, man, if you really want to understand who God is, right, deity, that the, the place that you look, the manifestation of that in bodily form is the person of Jesus Christ. That's, just that's a, wild. It's a huge statement, <laughs> huge. And then he's going to go on to say that this same Jesus is the head over every power, over, over, over every authority. And so this is like an all-encompassing uh, authority that's given to this Jesus. And so the Bible, you're just going to get this really kind of high, expansive picture of who Christ is. You know, it's interesting, even just thinking about what Paul says in this passage about Jesus, I think if, if you really want to see just the, the extent to which the Bible is going to speak about how significant and how uh, kind of exalted Jesus is, just go back one chapter. One and chapter. That's if it. you go back into Colossians <laughs> chapter 1, specifically from verses 15 to 18, we won't read the whole thing, but if you flip back just one page, one chapter, you're going to see, it actually says, the Bible's going to say this is true about Jesus, that he is the manifestation of God, that he is the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he's, he's preeminent. It's going to say that he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. It says all things were made by him, for him, through him, and in him, and that he is before all things. And so just this, this idea that the Bible is going to give us this huge view of Jesus, of who he is, and, and those type of things. And yet, what I want you to notice in this Colossians passage in chapter 2 is that while it gives us this big picture of Christ, it's going to go on to tell us that the picture of Jesus' ultimate triumph and, and really, uh, the picture, the greatest moment of, of his liberating act that has freed us is going to be the cross. It's going to talk about the cross. This, this um, shameful, grotesque thing of, of the cross. And so, if you just take a look in Colossians 2, he's going to say this. He's going to say, God forgave us of all of our sins. Jesus forgave us, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so you see he's talking about the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And here's what I want you to notice is so fascinating. The Bible's gonna say that the picture of Jesus' triumph, notice it doesn't say the resurrection here, which we'll talk about that next week for sure, but he says it was the cross, it was, it was the cross. Man, this seems so paradoxical. Right. It seems to fly in the face of common sense, doesn't yeah. it? So like if, if I just look at the cross from a logical, rational standpoint, if I try to do the math in my brain and figure out how, how all that works, like it, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Like why, why a crucified uh, Messiah, like a, a kingly pretender, a, a crucified man would be Lord over the whole world. And yet when you, when you get this, there's something almost deep and visceral that, that occurs within us, that when we read something like this, though it might not make rational sense to us, logical sense, we're like, man, that's so powerful. And that is so true. And we're almost asked to just be confronted by the beauty of the cross rather than try to rationalize it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this right here displays for us really the difference between Jesus Christ and, and every other religion of the world. Yeah. I think the difference is, is the cross, because here you have this incredible picture of how high and exalted Jesus is, and then you have this the depths of what, what it looks like for his victory and his love to look like on the cross. And I think that's led us to this, it kind of led us to this statement. I know we've talked about this earlier, but I feel like this is just such a powerful thought to think about, powerful statement, and that's this, is that what, I think what Colossians is telling us is that God looks like if you want to know what the fullness of God looks like, God looks like Jesus hanging on a cross. Wow. And that's what the scripture is going to tell us, that if, um, that if you want to know what the fullest expression of God's character looks like, that the, the, the definitive place that you can look to to know who God is and to know what he's like is to, is to, look, at, is to look at the cross. And man, I just, I just think that's such a powerful thought. And so, so Seth, maybe um, I could just ask you this question. You know, when you think about this statement right here, um, which, quite honestly, even just saying it gives me chills yeah. to just even say that statement yeah. that this is what God looks like. Why is that? Why is that so important? You know? Yeah, I, I think it. Uh, I think it's important uh, for a lot of reasons, but mainly the first thing I think about is that it brings us this tremendous clarity 
as to who God is, that God is first and foremost a relational God. And, and so if, if we agree with that, like anytime we interact with any other, whether it's a human being or whether we're thinking about interacting with God in relationship, um, any, anytime we go to do that, we have to sort of, you know, know what that person is like if we want to truly enter into a deep, and I know this word might sound weird, but nevertheless, it's true, like a deep and kind of intimate or like an authentic and a meaning or a meaningful relationship with that person. And so I think if God looks like Jesus hanging on a cross, that is absolutely going to shape how we interact with him and how we understand his heart for us um, and, his, and his character. So uh, I think the one thing that, that uh, is, is striking to me is that in our world today, there are so many different like ideas and conceptions about who God is and what he's like. Yeah, all kinds of different pictures. Yeah, like, all kinds of different pictures. Like, yeah. and, and those pictures show up not only externally, like out there, but they also show up, they're generated sometimes internally in our own perceptions, like, huh, as we kind of conjecture or surmise, like, well, God must be like this, right? So we have our internal perceptions. Are those perceptions accurate? How do we know that those perceptions or those maybe intuitions or visceral, visceral reactions about who God is, how do we know that those are true or accurate reflections of God? So it's internal, but it's also external. So there are a lot of different religious systems that are out there. And we've been talking in the series, What's the Difference recently, about uh, you know, kind of what distinguishes different belief systems from New Testament Christianity. Um, but some of those external expressions, um, their portraits or their understanding or their teaching about who God is, is radically different from God looking like Jesus hanging on a cross. So there's a lot of presentations that are out there and yeah, the it's question, like, would the real God yeah, would, please, would you please stand up? Stand up? Yeah. yeah, like the yeah. M&M. Right? Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So what God are we talking about? What is God really like? Do, do I buy into my perceptions? Do I buy into what other people say God is? Because there's a lot of confusion that's floating around there. Um, I, I love this too. I think it's very impactful for something that actually Jesus says to his disciples. Awesome passage. We, we won't put it on the screen and I'll just paraphrase it for us. But in John 14, Jesus says something uh, very profound to his disciples. He's got his disciples kind of in this upper room. He's about to go to the cross. He's spending some time with them. And after he's explained a couple things to them, um, one of his disciples, Philip, comes up to him and he says, listen, Jesus, uh, what you say is really good. I'm paraphrasing here, but like what you say is really good. Sometimes you're confusing, right? Sometimes we don't quite understand what you're saying. We don't get it. And he's like, hey, could you just do us a favor, Jesus? Just show us the Father. And that'll be enough for us. In other words, like you got a lot of things to say, but could you just get down to brass tacks? Could you just show us what God is really like? And Jesus looks at him and you can almost feel the, the longing in Jesus's voice for Philip. When you read it, he says, Philip, have I been with you so long? Like I've been around you and I've been relating with you so long and you don't know yet. And then he says something so good. He says, he who has seen me has seen the father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so um, I think that God looking like Jesus on the cross is a massive, is a massive statement about um, how we would understand God, how we would relate to God, because Jesus unequivocally declares that even his death and his sacrifice and his life poured out for us is going to show us the true character of the one true God. The real God has stood up. Yeah. Yeah. in the person of Jesus. Yeah, I think it's super, if I'm hearing you correctly too, I, I feel like what you're saying is really good because you're like, yeah, there's all these, there are all these pictures of who God is. And even when you look in the Bible, there's, there's all these pictures of who God is. Yeah. But the fact that all of those other pictures only make sense in light of this picture, I think is a really good thought. We were talking about this as kind of a silly analogy, but uh, we were actually talking about, like if you think about, let's just use a prominent character. Let's use, you know, someone like LeBron James, who is an Akron hero to all of us. But it's like you go, you know, you can Google image search him, and you might find a picture of him, you know, helping out at a, a, a local school. Uh, you might find a picture of him hanging out at a baseball game, or you might find a picture of his, you know, elaborate mansions and those type of things. But you're like, is there a definitive picture that you can look at that fully embodies what he's most known for and what he's most passionate about? What is and he really about? What, what's Underneath he really about, it all, right? yeah. Right. So you're like, is he about going to baseball games? Is that what LeBron, is he about like, you know, I don't know, wearing suits with shorts? I don't, I don't know, <laughs> is that what he's really about? Is he really about um, like dunks that look amazing yeah. and look artistic? Is he really about that yeah. or is he about? And we were saying maybe the definitive picture that, that embodies LeBron is after game seven, right, at the Cavs, when he's on, when he's on, the, on the floor 
crying. Yeah, pounding that, his fists on the floor. Right. Yeah, that's that's like, LeBron James. Like, there's the picture. <laughs> there's the picture, and that's a dumb analogy. But I, I think what's so cool is what the Bible is telling us. You got all these snapshots of who God is, and these are all true about Him. But it's going to say, man, in a lot of ways, the fullness, the fullness of deity and bodily form is found in Christ and Him crucified. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful thought. Yeah, it just kind of reminded me, I think, another thing that it, it, it just really is impactful when I read this. I think one of the things it definitely tells us about the character of God is it tells us that God is a God who would rather uh, die for His enemies um, than, than kill them. He'd, he'd rather die for them. And I just, I feel like there's all kinds of confusing things about who God is, but this, this crystallizing clarifies a lot. Yeah. I was thinking about something Richard Foster said, a quote that I just, I wanted to share with you guys because I thought it was so powerful. Richard Foster said this, he said, love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. And I think sometimes we get this idea that God is reluctant, he's distant, he, you know, maybe he's disappointed in us. The cross is going to tell us all, the, the, mat, the, cro the cross is going to do a different kind of math for us. And it's going to reveal to us the extent to which God came. And it says a whole bunch about his character. It was, it really, we've talked about this before. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It just wasn't. It was his love for us. It was his great love and his desire to forgive. So, and I think that kind of leads into the, the second thing. So we said it, it tells us who, who God is. What is his character? But I think the cross tells us how God acts, right? Also about the actions that God takes. And so, uh, Seth, where do we see that in this passage? Maybe you can kind of show us that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think in this passage it shows up in a myriad of ways, uh, which could potentially even be confusing for some of us when we like really start to dig in in Colossians 2. Obviously, the cross is a supremely difficult topic. You mentioned it earlier. It's inexhaustible. I, I like to use the word that there's an unplumbable depth. Yeah. There's, there are unplumbable depths. Uh, to the cross such that we could just spend the rest of our lives investigating it and digging deep and still not exhaust everything there is to be to be said. But I, I like as I was studying this passage in Colossians 2, I was reading a commentary by uh, a Bible scholar named James Dunn. And I love what, what James Dunn said about this passage is he says, as, as you look at this, you almost start to get this idea that uh, there are so many different facets and portraits of the cross that are packed into this one little section. Like there's just, it's this dense summary of the cross. And, you know, throughout the New Testament, the, the different New Testament authors use different metaphors to describe the significance and the meaning of just what the cross was to do for humanity and what God's plan was in the cross. So I like what James Dunn said about it. He said that actually in this passage, this passage, he says, has a kaleidoscope of metaphors yeah, embedded that's good. in it. I like that. So if you think about, I mean, we've all seen a kaleidoscope, right? The minute you look through a kaleidoscope and you feel like you've got it, if you just rotate it slightly, <laughs> right, there's new dimensions, new shapes, and new colors that begin to come out of it. So Dunn says, and I love it, he says it's, there's a kaleidoscope of metaphors that's found in this passage. And then he says that these metaphors almost trip over one another. So when I, when I first read that, I thought, well, I was maybe a little offended, like, this is sacred scripture. Right? This is Paul writing about. But as I read it further, I thought, man, there's something really beautiful about that. There's something so accurate about this kaleidoscope of metaphors and Paul tripping over these metaphors. So it's this idea, like, even before verse 13, Paul starts talking about, well, baptism has some sort of way of signifying the death of Jesus and what it means. But then if you notice, like you go in verse 13 here, then he starts talking about circ circumcision, right? So there's something about circumcision. Maybe we'll just leave that. Maybe we'll cut that off the conversation <laughs> oh, or something like that. But oh, yeah. you see it. So there's circumcision. And then like, then all of a sudden God made you alive with Christ. There's, there's death and life. And then just as soon as Paul starts talking about that, he starts talking about he forgave us all our sins. And then as soon as he starts talking about, you're like, so Paul, give me more about that. Give me more about like, what does it mean to forgive? And then he's on to verse 14. Well, no, 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 no. He's in, in the cross. God has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In other words, we were indebted to God in some way and in some way, shape or form, like the Old Testament law that was given by a good God now stands against us somehow. And somehow at the cross, like God deals with that. He, he takes it away. He nails that to the cross. And then just when you start, your interest starts getting peaked in verse 14, he's on to something else now. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed them, uh, triumphing over them by the cross. And so you're like, Paul, slow 
down. It's almost like, like, I don't know, you ever talk to a kid when they get excited about something? (laughs) You almost hear, like, I just love that because Paul's so excited and enthusiastic and passionate about this. He's like, the cross means this, and it means that, and it means means this. Yeah, but, it's, but, it can be difficult to read because you're like, geez, man. Yeah, so, you're just yeah. barraged with all these different facets of the cross. But I think what's really helpful about this is sort of the climax to this section here in verse 15 and just how it's really helped me out to dig in, uh, dig into something that has been probably the most confusing aspect of the cross for me uh, as I've thought about it and reflected on it in my years of following Jesus. This verse 15 is that somehow in some way, Paul is saying that the crucifixion of Jesus is the epic triumph of of Jesus over the forces of darkness, over the rulers or the powers and the authorities, right? And again, we talked about this already a little bit, that part of the confusion is related to just common sense. Um, So I think when we're thinking about it, like nobody in their right mind, and this is true for us, but it would, would have been absolutely true for a first century person as well. Nobody in their right mind would ever think that a hanging dead man on a tree, on a cross, would have just reconciled the world back to God and simultaneously would have utterly vanquished his opponents and everything that stands opposed to God's good creation. See, that's what I think is so wild in this passage is that it says he triumphed over them, right. not by the resurrection, by the cross, yeah. which of course it includes the resurrection, but that's what you're right. talking about so good. Right, it yeah. seems so paradoxical. And, and the, the point that you're making too is, is there's a couple words here that just strike you because Paul is, he's making that definitive declaration. Jesus wins yeah. at the cross, at the, right. not, not before it, not after it, not someplace else, right? He wins at the cross and he uses terms like disarmed here in verse 15. He says, having disarmed the rulers and the authorities. I love this because if you actually look at it in the original language, it simply means undressed, <laughs> undressed. Think about how profound that is. Like evil in its underwear. He de-pants. <laughs> that was unexpected. <laughs> but yeah, like evil in its underwear, evil in a diaper. Um, and if you think about a little child in a diaper with like no clothes on, yeah, undressed, like humiliating. it's harmless. And it's, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, w- what is a baby going to do, right? But so obviously we have to look at like the military. We have to appreciate maybe the military metaphor that's going on here. So, uh, Undressed is you're basically stripping off your enemy's armor and you're ridding them of all their weaponry. And so think about the significance of that for someone who would claim to follow Jesus, who might be tempted to fear the weapons of the evil one, the weapons of the evil powers. They've been stripped, they're gone. And then furthermore, when he says he made a public spectacle of them, this is actually one word in the original language, and it was a word that was used to refer to a conquered people or conquered army being paraded down Main Street in the victor's city, their capital city, with all the, the victor's citizens on either side of that street just celebrating the triumph and the shame of the conquered being paraded down. And so, and so there's a lot more, obviously, with all of this, but even in particular with this, there's a lot more that could be said. But I think for me especially, one of the things that this does is it confronts my default assumptions about what power truly is. Yeah, that's right. About what power truly is. So um, for me, sort of in my like sinful default humanity, and I think it's this way for the evil powers too, sin, death, and Satan, I, I think there's this idea that power is sort of subjugation. It's ruthless coercion. It's violence. It's dominance. And that I wield the weapons of death and destruction in order to win victory over my enemies, such that power in this paradigm looks like, maybe it looks like this statement, that I win when I kill my enemies, that I win when I kill my enemies. And you've already kind of mentioned it, the beauty of the cross. I mean, the beauty of what Paul is saying here, just in this verse 15, in the culmination of this kaleidoscope of metaphors, right? The beauty is of this upside down nature of God's wisdom, the upside down nature of God's plan, the upside down nature of power and its definition. That power isn't for God. It's not about coercive and destructive force. It's characterized by sacrificial love. Yeah. It's sacrificial yeah. love, right? Yeah, he's pa- saying, I yeah. win, not when I kill right. my enemies. I win when I die for my enemies. That's right. It's and so, so you, you see here that Jesus is, in, to some degree at the cross, the cross is a painted picture of Jesus hanging and absorbing all the consequences of sin, death, and he's absorbing um, all the powers 
uh, or all the power as, the, as Satan would define it, right? The, the destructive power. He's absorbing that. He's taking that onto himself. And it's this idea that when he's crucified, um, that the evil, the evil powers have sort of, in the, in the cosmic game of poker, they've put all their chips in. And so that the powers of darkness and hell have been exhausted. That's an important word, like exhausted. Those powers have been emptied on Jesus at the cross. And then the resurrection as the follow-up shows that those powers have been exhausted, but Jesus has, has triumphed, that something happened on the cross. So like you said, that power is not, um, I win when I kill my enemies. Uh, this, the cross, shows us that God has a different way of looking at it. He says when Je or Jesus wins when his enemies kill him. So although I don't still fully completely understand how that works, I want the math to be clean as to why it is that way. This is what Paul is saying in a profound way. The resurrection declares that Jesus's death here isn't just another in a long line of Jew Jewish revolutionaries who died uh, or crucified under Roman rule because they were deemed insurrectionists. The resurrection declares that this death is different because this death somehow was a massive triumph over everything that uh, was a threat to God's people. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I think, uh, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier. I just think when, when you look at the cross, I think it reveals that uh, that, G, that Jesus and that God through Christ is like the ultimate jujitsu master. And I know we've talked about jujitsu. We've actually talked about it before too. And you guys probably know this, but jujitsu, uh, here's a Wikipedia definition of, of what the art of jujitsu is. It, it's uh, So the first part, ju, can be translated to mean gentle, soft, pliable, or yielding. And then the whole idea of jutsu can be translated to mean art or technique. And so basically it is the art of manipulating the opponent's force against himself, right? It's the art of yielding and allowing the full force of the enemy to be turned around and used to, to his own destruction. And I just love that idea because you're like, yeah, on the cross you see that God is the ultimate jujitsu master, that the, the full weight of that the enemy can throw uh, onto, onto him, that he's going to go ahead and turn all that back around, and it's going to be uh, the force that's going to be inflicted upon the enemy in those things. And so I, I just think that in a lot of ways what that does is it reveals to us what God is capable of doing with whatever the enemy and whatever life can throw at us, you know, uh, the amount of suffering, the amount of pain, the amount of um, sadness, sin that we navigate in life. Um, it shows us what God, what, what suffering in the hands of this God. Of a powerful God. As of, he a jiu -jitsu yeah, God. of a jujitsu God. I mean, God wants to do jujitsu in our lives, you know. I think, I think some of this is really relevant to what we're even facing right now. Um, you know, one of the big questions we get as pastors during this time is um, why would God allow something like coronavirus and kind of what we're seeing? And, you know, that, that question, I think any, any response is going to sound dismissive and it's going to sound like just insufficient because it's such a big question that I can't even claim that, that we, could, we know those things. Mm -hmm. But I think that even though we might not know the details of that, and there might be all kinds of considerations that... Um, that are not being thought through. I do know this, that we can look at the cross. We can always look at the cross, and the cross is going to tell us all kinds of things about how God will yield pain and suffering, and he will even yield the enemy in, in the ways that he's working. But then he will turn that around, mm -hmm. and he will use that for ultimate victory. Because I guarantee that the evil forces, and I guarantee that all those who were watching that day, had no idea what God, completely outside of the realm of what was thought possible, that three days later, this Jesus was going to raise from the dead. Yeah, and pa yeah. Paul would agree with that statement. Yeah. So um, we won't have it up on the screen, but if you read 1 Corinthians 2, there's this tiny little statement that Paul makes there that, that if the rulers and the authorities would have known that this was God's plan and that Jesus was the ultimate jujitsu master, they would have known, Paul literally says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They wouldn't have done it. And so there's this fun little word. Uh, it's, it's the word subterfuge. It's this idea of like not giving away too much. And so it's the idea of not giving away too much and still working your plan so that you can draw. It's almost like at the luring cross, them in. God yeah. is through Christ luring the powers of evil out of hiding and concentrating them on Jesus and crucifying them there. And it's, it's so, and I think that's true. I think we know that too, is uh, 
Like a lot of us look around the world and we're like, that's evil or that's evil. Or we see things we're like, that's evil. But how do we know that our definition or understanding, our perception of evil is true? Like what does evil really look like? And God, what he does in this, this uh, jujitsu way, he lures all these powers of evil out. And you could see it right there on a Roman cross. Right there, and, and he crucifies it. He deals with it. He triumphs. He con he conquers over it. It's a it's an amazing picture. It, it is there's, pretty cool. There's so much to say on that too, and I, you know maybe this would be a good spot for you uh, to take a, a quick discussion break in your in your living room or wherever you might be. Maybe with the people with you're with, take take about five minutes or so, and uh, maybe think through this this question right here. So, what are other ways that the cross impacts the way that you understand and see God? So, if it's true uh, that God looks like Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Just process through what else does that mean about who God is and about how God acts. So take a moment, maybe think about that and, uh, and discuss that with, with the people that you're with right now.
All right, well, good. Well, we're talking about those three things that the cross kind of tells us about God. And so here's what we've discovered so far. The cross tells us who God is. The cross tells us how God acts. And now quickly, kind of to finish things off, we want to talk about how the cross tells us how to live. So specifically for those who follow Jesus, I think the cross is going to really instruct us uh, in, in how we live our lives, of how that changes us. Now, it's interesting in the book of Colossians, the, the very passage that we're just reading in that same book, the Apostle Paul is actually going to define for us the gospel, uh, the core message of, of, of New Testament Christianity. And what he's going to say is this, that the gospel is essentially, uh, it is the, the high view of Jesus, that Jesus is, is the fullness of God, mm-hmm. and then it's the cross, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. And he's going to say that in a very succinct way, that is a message of the gospel. And what Paul is going to actually say in chapter 1, in fact, you can go back and look at it in chapter 1, verse 23, as he says that it's this gospel that's going to bear fruit in our lives. In other words, it, that this message, like the, the, re, the historical reality that, that the God of the universe came into human form, died on a cross, and he rose from the dead, he's going to say that that, that needs to produce uh, things in your life. It needs to bear fruit in your life. And so I think the, here's the question then is what kind of change specifically does the cross produce in our lives? So we'll talk about the resurrection next week. But the fact that, historically speaking, Jesus Christ died on the cross, like, how does that actually produce life change in, yeah. in us? Yeah. yeah, I think to just kind of kick that off, uh, get us set in the right direction, um, I'm just reminded when, I, when I'm asked a question like that, one of the first things that pops in my head um, is John 15, 13. So there, again, Jesus is with his disciples. It's before he's about to go to the cross. And so he's got a lot of really important things to say to them. Um, In John 15 overall, he talks about how essential and important it is to cultivate an abiding relationship with him. So if anyone would call Jesus uh, their master, if they would be a disciple of Jesus, that there's this abiding relationship that, that, that they would have. They would be plugged into the vine is what he says. And then I think what he's saying here in John 15, 13 is that the result of, a, of an abiding relationship. In other words, if you ask the question, how do, you know that I, how do I know that I have a vibing, a, a vibrant or abiding relationship with Jesus? He says, well, stuff's gonna show up in your life. And in John 15, 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that um, someone lay his life down or someone laid down their life for their friends. And I thought, um, man, the first thing I think about there when I hear that is the kind of like, again, uh, God's definition of power is the power to love sacrificially. It does remind me of the 80s song in Back to the Future, right? Power, like, uh, Huey, Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah, the power we're, of love we're is totally yeah. dating ourselves right now, by the way. So if you're, if you're you know, younger, there's a phenomenal movie out there called Back to the Future. Marty! Yeah, like, like 1.21 gigawatts. Okay, yeah. so, but I think the point that we're getting here is that, that there is a power to love but it's love demonstrated and expressed by the example of Jesus. And that when a disciple of Jesus intentionally connects themselves to his heart in that way, that that's going to start to translate and show up in their own lives. And it's not a love that simply has the power to melt my heart, right? That's not the power of love we're talking about, or it's not like making my endorphins go crazy. We're saying it's the way of the cross, that, that that what Jesus did, if indeed discipleship means that I follow Jesus and I look like him in every aspect of my life, that if the pinnacle expression of Jesus's life is his willingness to lay down his life, then that begins to show up. It should show up. It ought to show up in my life practically. And so what does it mean to lay down my life? Well, I think it it means uh, working with Jesus in that abiding relationship. having, a, having uh, an ear out for the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given to every follower or every one of his followers to both um, expose and also reject my own self-centeredness. Mm, that's so good. And yeah, my own perceived so understanding of what I need and what I desire. We feel like maybe that's what Jesus means when he says, take up, take up, my, take yeah. up your cross and follow me. Take up your so, cross yeah. and, 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 and follow me. Yeah, it's, it's first of all an exposure though. There are aspects of my self-centeredness that I don't even know. So it's working in concert with Jesus to have those things exposed so I can be aware of them. And then working with God's spirit to reject those things so that I can pour myself out that others might have life. I I like the way one of my theology professors in seminary put it. He said, this kind of love is intentionally inconveniencing myself for the worthless person. He puts worthless person in quotes, but intentionally inconveniencing myself for the worthless person so you might ask, okay, I think I get what intentionally inconveniencing myself might mean. 
well, who's the worthless person? There's a reason why that's in quotes, right? The worthless person is doing the math yourself. Who is the person that I deem to be the most worthless? And it's an intentional inconveniencing of myself for those kinds of people. Now, let me just say on that, by the way, um, no nudging anyone in the room <laughs> or looking at anyone when you say that. Be nice to each other. So don't nudge the, most, yeah. the person you deem most worthless. <laughs> yeah, but it is because, I mean, who is more worthless than unredeemed, like, sinful humanity? Who is more worthless? Like, we were the most worthless, detestable people. And that's who Jesus went to the cross for. That's going to translate it. It ought to show up in the lives of followers of Jesus. So the widow, the orphan, the outcast, the marginalized, who's most worthless? And I think the example of Jesus is an abiding relationship with Jesus looks like we're running after those people to sacrificially love them. Yeah, I think that's that's really good what you're saying there too. And I, I would even just kind of add to that. I feel like, you know, this the idea of how does the cross teach us to live in addition to that, it's fascinating to me, I think, when you look at every commandment in the New Testament that the Bible gives to those who follow Jesus, uh, and you think about it, so I just will give you a short list here, but things like uh, love your enemy, you know, turn the other cheek, consider the needs of others, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, serve each other. What's fascinating, I think, is uh, all of these commandments uh, are, are always kind of, they always draw back to uh, just as Christ Jesus has done for you. But the question becomes, when did Jesus, when did God do these things for us? And the truth is, there's a million ways that he has, right? There's a million ways that he's loved his enemy. The, he, he's allowed the sun to rise today. That's the way that he loves his enemies. But the, the most definitive place where you see the fullness of these things expressed is always on the cross. So when did he love his enemy? Well, he loved us on the cross, right? When did he turn the other cheek? When did he allow injustice to be absorbed into himself? And when did he decidedly uh, withhold his power um, for, for, the sake of our, for, for the sake of the good of his enemies uh, on the cross? When did he consider the needs of others as above his own? Um, he, didn't, he, he had no needs, and yet he considered our needs, and he, he did that. When did he bear uh, our burden? And uh, that didn't belong to him. That was not his burden. It was on the cross, forgiven, servant, so on and so forth. So I feel like, um, I think this is part why Jesus, it's interesting to me, Jesus never tells his followers to uh, remember and reflect and deeply contemplate his commandments. But he does say, deeply reflect and contemplate the cross. My, my, because I feel like when you do that, when you take the cross in and you just gaze upon that act, it's going to begin to transform your heart and inform the way you live and things like that. So, so maybe practically speaking, how do we do that? How do we gaze upon the cross? Even this week, what are ways that we can fix our eyes on what Jesus has done for us in kind of in the cross? Yeah, I, I think a super simple and potentially hopefully short response to that is simply regularly returning to the revelation of God. In other words, this is what God is like. Uh, regularly, regularly returning to the revelation of God at the cross. So we have our Bible, right? We have these narratives. We have four different expressions of what happened at the cross in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Toward the end of each one of these accounts of Jesus's life, it exposes us afresh to the beauty and the power of his death. Um, so I would just say even in Bible reading this week or even um, throughout the course of diving into scripture in some kind of regular rhythm, um, keeping in the forefront of our minds these portraits of Jesus. I think for many of us, this is definitely true of myself, um, I want to know how it all happened and how it all works, but I think what Jesus is asking of us is to regularly return to that it happened and, and just allowing not, not the, the, the cognitive, logical side of ourselves to take over, but to just be confronted again with the beauty of this portrait of who he is. So it's just going back to the crucifixion narratives. And I would just also say, uh, lastly, like, to not stop yeah. reading yeah. at the end of the can't, crucifixion. Can't stop at the cross. Keep, yeah. keep reading on because the resurrection is going to validate the realities of what actually happened in the crucifixion. Yeah. So keeping Jesus in front of us and what he did is, is a practical way to do it. Yeah, gaze at the cross, don't stop there. Right, that's why Easter's coming up. Right, that's right. Do that, but, but yeah, think about that. I, I would just add to that too. I think, yeah, read, read some pas the passages of scripture that do that. And then I think that Jesus himself actually gave us a way to, to set our minds on the cross when, you know, in the last, the last supper with his disciples in the upper room, um, when he said, he said, hey, this is a new covenant. I want to give you a sign of that new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. And 
that was, of course, where communion was practiced. And that's something that we're commanded to do, is to look back and remember the cross. And so I actually feel like this would be a great opportunity to just invite you. I know during announcements you heard, but Good Friday service is coming up this Friday. Uh, that is exactly what we're doing. We are um, remembering the cross, remembering what Jesus did, and remembering who he is, what he did, and then how that informs us to live. And I want to encourage you to lock into that as well. I think it'll be a great time. Uh, on Good Friday. Um, great conversation, a lot that we could be talking about, but, uh, but we'll, we'll draw the line there. And why don't I just pray for us uh, quickly here, and, uh, and then we look forward to seeing you this coming Friday. So let's, let's pray together. Yeah, well, Jesus, we just want to say thank you for the cross. It's uh, goodness. It is inexhaustible in its implications, but it really does. It tells us so much about who you are. Maybe, possibly, it tells us just about everything we need to know about who you are. And it also tells us about the, the actions that you take, God. It's everything that you say about who you are is validated in that action of what you've done and your death on the cross. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to just to, to really think it through. You know, we don't, we don't want to treat that uh, as something that's small. Uh, we don't want to be dismissive about what you did, but we really want the magnitude of what you've done to transform us. So I pray that would happen. God, thank you for every person who's watching this online. I want to pray specific blessing over them. Uh, let them be transformed as well by what you've done for us, by your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey all, Tommy here again. Hope you enjoyed this weekend's online weekend experience. If you have any questions or urgent needs, please reach out to us. You can do that by downloading our app or through our website. Um, there you'll find a connect card. Feel free to fill that out with any comments or prayer requests you might have. I am super excited for next weekend as we celebrate Easter. Um, while we may not be meeting in person, we eagerly look forward to celebrating the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, this Friday, April 10th, we will be coming together for an online worship and communion service. Everything you and your family need to know to both prepare for and participate in this service is found in our Grace Church Communion Guide on our website. Uh, be sure to check that out today. Uh, for next weekend, we are preparing a special online experience for us to celebrate Easter together. Um, we're going to continue to look at the difference the resurrection makes in our lives. Um, invite someone you know to view that along with you. Um, we encourage you to do that. We miss you guys. We look forward to the time when we can get back together. But until then, love you all and God bless.